0: so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea. Your host for today's interview with Stephen Hurd, professor of biology at the University of New Brunswick. His book, The Scientist's Guide to Writing, How to Write More Easily and Effectively Throughout Your Scientific Career, was published by Princeton University Press this year. This is the book's second edition. This book helps the scientists become aware of his or her writing as a thing that they can observe and as an action that they are actually doing themselves. This book helps writing scientists, that is, all scientists, structure every part of a text from the longest section to the shortest sentence. And this book helps science as an entire community to reflect on how they write so that they can research at their best. Here is Stephen Hurd in his own words about revision, about how everyone needs to be revising hard, though hardly anyone has ever been taught. How-to? An unfortunate aspect of undergraduate science education is that almost all the writing involved is done to a relatively short deadline, a semester at most, and is undertaken individually, handed in, and then graded. This gives students little opportunity for repeated revision and polishing of their work. Even scientific writing courses rarely feature more than a round or two of revision after comments from a single instructor. This bears little resemblance to the way scientists write in the real world. The production of a complete manuscript draft is a notable landmark, but one closer to the beginning of the writing process than to the end. Every paper I write is overhauled repeatedly, with multiple rounds of revision before anyone else ever sees it, followed by many more rounds in response to comments from friends and colleagues, and then from peer reviewers and editors. Dozens of drafts are routine spread over many months, occasionally years. You can't learn to write better without learning to revise better. That is Stephen Hurd from his book, The Scientist's Guide to Writing. This is Stephen Hurd on scholarly communication. Hi, Steve. Hello. Um, You give us right there in that uh, quote that I just gave from your book um, a view on two really important things in um, a scientist's education. The, The learning of how to revise, but also the realization of this process involved, this idea that as the research takes time, so does the writing as well. Um, do you think that you could maybe get our conversation kicked off by giving a few words on revision in, in, in its place, as, as, it, as it's also presented here in this quotation, in education?
2: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's one of those things that I remember learning about writing myself when I was sort of becoming a scientific writer uh, and transitioning myself from that undergraduate model where I would write something uh, once, hand it in, get a grade back, and it was done, right? Uh, and But, you know, when I started writing papers for publication, that that wasn't how it worked. And, and I, for a while, I sort of thought it would, and I, w- I would write a piece and I would say, well, I'm done. Uh, and, of course, it was never like that uh, because I would get comments and, and I would see what my co-author thought or my advisor thought or my friend thought. I'd say, oh, well, oh, you know, that's actually right, and I would change. The, well, usually I'd say that. Sometimes I'd say, oh man, what? Why did you think that? Uh, and I would change something, and I would see it get better. And 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 that was pretty fundamental to me in terms of a difference in the way writing was happening. That it wasn't just a thing that you know, when the when the experiments were over, you you quote unquote wrote it up and handed it in, and that was it. It's not like that. It's it's a it's, it's a bigger thing, uh, a more interesting thing. That has lots of room for finding your way towards a final finished product uh, and and for getting lots of help in making that product better than it would have been if you had just done it once.
1: yeah, that collaborative aspect is really important. and and it and to get back to education, it it, it just seems to be so blatantly, so heinously almost missing from the writing instruction that uh, you know, student scientists receive, because I mean, they're collaborating everywhere else in their studies in the discipline, aren't they?
2: Yes. And, and we certainly do uh, have cases where we have students collaborate in, in writing, but they're unusual. Um, that's partly because, you know, the fundamental model of undergraduate education is individuals earn, earn grades in courses, of course, we have group work. We absolutely do. Uh, as an instructor, I, I like to use group work, even though as a student, I h- used to hate it myself. Um, it's important, though, that people learn to do group work. It, it does. It's much more complicated to figure out sort of fair ways to structure and assess group assignments than it is to just have everyone hand in their own thing. And then on top of that, the other, so that's one aspect of the collaborative writing. But the other one is is the, this notion that you got out in that quote about handing out a draft and getting iterative feedback on that draft. That's a really powerful way to teach writing, but it's also really difficult. It takes a lot of instructor time to do that. And I think there's no more you know fancy reason for the way we teach writing than that, just that it doing teaching writing well with with many rounds of, of or multiple rounds of comments on something is logistically hard to implement for large numbers of students. You can do it for a few. I teach a writing course in which I do it for you know a dozen or 15 students. I couldn't do it for 50 or 60 uh, and yet we have hundreds of majors. I don't know how we would ever do it. Now, I say that and you know there are ways to do it more efficiently and and, and one gets better at it. Uh, but fundamentally, I don't know that we will ever routinely teach undergraduates to write with multiple drafts and multiple rounds uh, just because it takes so much instructor effort. It's it's too bad, but it's sort of a hard to know, hard to know what to do with, really.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you say, the logistics of the matter, um, I... I- my first thought, um, I, I work um, as a writing professional at Heidelberg uh, University, and this is something that my listeners will know, but my first thought is turn to the writing center and try and have some more of a writing in the disciplines kind of cooperation going on, or added to that, also use... Uh, Peer uh, tutoring and peer reviewing—something that you also bring up right up at the front of your book, which is, which really made it, me excited because I'm a huge fan of of, of peer um, tutoring—and you right away pointed to the idea of a writing group as being a really strong way for people to get used to this idea of process, of improvement, of feedback, and and so
2: on. Yeah, those are, those are two good ideas, and and, and peer uh, uh, peer review. In class does work. Uh, it it's it, it can't do it all. Um, one of the issues with with that I've discovered with sort of peer feedback in writing is that it tends to um, it tends to bring you a kind of positive feedback that reinforces the kind of bad habits that people see in the literature. And so students will challenge each other's writing the ground that hey, that doesn't sound like a real paper because you didn't write in the passive voice. well, you know what things are changing <laughs> we shouldn't do that. So you have to be a little careful with the peer review that it doesn't sort of fossilize current practice in writing. The other thing you mentioned is the writing uh, centers and that, that, that's a, there's a really good broader point there which is which is I think a lot of writers are, are somewhat unaware of the, the diversity of resources out there for getting help with writing, uh, whether it's instruction in the classroom or your own writing. Uh, writing centers are one, librarians are another, uh, groups like Shut Up and Write uh, are another. And there There's many places you can turn for sort of writing help. Uh, it's easy to feel alone when you're struggling with a page of writing, uh, but you don't have to be.
1: I'd, I'd like to just, uh, and, and yes, very much so. I mean, there are so many resources and so many professionals out there and the disciplinary divide that very many people point up. So you, Steve, being a biologist, you're not only a good writer and understand writing, but you're also somebody who understands the biology. Um, it's It's been shown in so many studies and, and in so many practices that it's also, though, possible to get very helpful device from people on the other side of the disciplinary divide who share your um, acumen in writing, who understand the writing process and perhaps even have a degree in, in rhetoric or composition or in English, but don't have the biology background. But that doesn't disqualify them from being able to help people in chemistry, biology, physics or wherever it might be.
2: Yeah, I would agree, agree with that. I, I, would, I would sound... Just a small note of caution, which is like in anything else, there, there are, there are uh, uh, good sources of help and not so good ones. And, and it's possible to have someone outside the discipline who doesn't really understand they're outside the discipline. Hopefully those folks are not the ones in the writing centers, right? And in my experience, they generally aren't. People will, will look at your writing and they'll say, you know, this particular feature didn't ring right to me. Is that a standard part of writing in your, in your discipline, or is it something we should talk about? And so, it's just acknowledging, you know, that that people maybe aren't super familiar with uh, disciplinary norms in writing, and then being willing to talk about it, and and that conversation, uh, you know, is uh, again a big part of the realization that you can you can get help in writing, and it's not just correction. You can have you can have back and forth discussion about writing with people like that. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, I've learned a lot about writing from uh, uh, some of my friends who are who are uh, English professors, or or uh, all kinds of things, uh, uh, physicists and mathematicians and, and historians, uh, not just from biologists. Yeah, this is
1: this is one of those sort of perennial debates. Um, I've I've interviewed here. Um, Hillary Glassman Deal and Andrew Northern who, who work at Imperial College London and they work um, from the English academic purposes side so they would be writing professionals like me not inside the sciences but with all of the sciences represented at that college really shoulder on shoulder at the lab bench so to speak <laughs> and uh, essentially what they say for creating their credibility and improving their usefulness as writing professionals is that they, as they quote-unquote call it, have to do the graft. They've got to be constantly reading the literature that those publishing scientists or the future PhDs or the undergraduates are going to be reading or actually someday even publishing. They've got to keep up on the journals and understand those moves of rhetoric, those choices of words. Again, someone might think, Well, how is this possible? I mean, they're not, you know, the biologist or the engineer um, who who understands it. Um, Yeah, but text is text. Uh, They would argue, I would argue. And to be completely forthright here, there have been many of texts of my degree uh, that I got for English that I have to say I didn't understand. (laughs) Finnegan's Wake first amongst them all. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's, but the a, that's a by, <laughs> yes uh, uh, amongst many other poems but the point I'm trying to make and the point that I, I, I just would like to follow up with what you're saying uh, there which is very much on point is that um, I, I would recommend to, to scientists from the students up to let's say um, you know the professors or, or the researchers that they can probably get more help than they think from writing professionals. And this is with all the cautions that you put in place. Yes, that the writing professionals are, to begin with, professional,
2: and they realize their limitations, but they're also working to overcome them. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, uh, I, people are often reluctant to reach out to people like that. And and you know, it depends where you are. Some Some university writing centers are really focused on uh, support of particular undergraduate courses. Others are much more open and and uh, 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 will help grad students and and even faculty with writing. It's but it's never wrong to contact them and ask. Another thing you talked about is of course those professionals reading texts across a lot of disciplines. And that that struck a chord with me because of course in in working to write my book, I read hundreds of papers across. Scientific disciplines, um, and and a bunch in other disciplines too. You mentioned English for academic purposes, uh, for example, and science studies, and so on. And and yes, uh, I read things I didn't understand, uh, but I read a lot of things where I didn't understand the uh, the details of the science, but I understood the re- the rhetorical moves being made to explain it, uh, and I tried to reflect that in Some of the coverage in the book about, you know, there are some practices that differ a bit across fields, and it's good to acknowledge that, but there's also a lot of common uh, goals and a lot of common techniques used across fields in scientific writing as well. Yeah,
1: that's... uh shows in the book, you, you you don't just, I mean, this is not a book about writing biology. This is a book about writing science. I mean, that's made entirely clear. In fact, you give us even a
2: wonderful example of, I think it was pulsars or... Um, Massive star formation, I think is, is yeah, so I, I carried that, that example through several chapters. And it's not something I knew much about, but my, my son, who was about five or so at the time of writing the first edition and just absolutely loved uh, watching Nova on television the the, the PBS science uh, documentary series and there was one that, that we watched together a few times about uh, a new radio observatory in, in Chile and 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 I wound up making that into a running example in the book and and that meant learning a little bit about the physics of the formation of new stars uh, which of course I I ran past an astronomer colleague of mine to make sure I wasn't too far off, but I, I really enjoyed actually making the book about writing science, not biology. Uh, and and I there are other examples. I draw examples from from earth science and and chemistry and physics and so on, and, and it was really fun actually. Yeah, well,
1: uh, it shows. And, and this brings me to uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the book as a way of strengthening someone's writing um, abilities. And I want to get it into a few of these details now. Uh, but it is just that the wide reading. I mean, you mentioned Wuthering Heights. <laughs> I mean, this is not the kind of book that, you know, typically shows up in a scientist's writing guide. Or you'll look back to history. So the early modern era and how all this came about. Yeah, why do we have an IMRAD structure? and Why do we have it that way? Yeah, why is it used in that fashion? I, I suppose maybe to just kick off your view on these these aspects of your book, um, it isn't uncontroversial that people read broadly and use that to improve their writing and science i mean there are different views there there's the one where you have basically transferable skills view and they have the other where you have a highly specialized set of skills and you should really just be focusing your attention on research articles if that's what you're going to read you seem to come down on the transferable skills side
2: well i'm going to straddle the fence a little bit um because it's certainly true that there are things we do in scientific writing that we don't do in other kinds of writing, and you have to understand those disciplinary conventions. Uh, you know, IMRAD, for for example, uh, you certainly wouldn't wouldn't write a novel in an IMRAD format, at least. You know what you. People write novels every possible way. I bet you someone has written one in an IMRAD format. Um, or they will now. <laughs> or they will now. <laughs> uh, and I'll take my slice of the royalties. Um, but uh, um, so there are certainly things that you need to, uh, conventions you need to respect in, in writing to a set of readers who have expectations that have been raised on IMRAD uh, style writing. And know what they're looking for, and and, and writing to that is, is a powerful way to to reach readers. So it's not that that everything's uh, immediately transferable, but uh, as you said earlier, text is is text, and rhetoric rhetorical uh, techniques uh, are, are are a general thing. And and I th- I think you can read almost anything. Uh, and so you mentioned Wuthering Heights, and 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 I think you can read Wuthering Heights, and you can notice you know, uh, maybe a few techniques that have been used there. You can maybe think about foreshadowing or, I, I don't know, sentence structure that you like, and, and you can echo those in your own writing. And Wuthering Heights is, is maybe a little bit out there, but but I think almost anything you you read, if you read it with sort of some conscious attention to what you're reading and what, you, what your reactions are to it and what you like about it, uh, can then show up in your scientific writing. That, that can make it sound like I'm saying that, Everyone has to embark on a college English degree, uh, and that's not what I'm saying. Um, uh, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't have to read everything ever been published. Uh, uh, I, I'm just saying that I think you can read as broadly as you can, as widely as you can, and just pay attention to what you like and don't like about it, and, and use that to enrich your toolbox.
1: Yeah, and this, this is, uh, uh, you, you set out three goals in the beginning of the book, and this is clearly one of them, just stated plainly, to be conscious of what you're doing, you know, raising awareness, which is something that you spend um, some wonderful space on in the book, doing things that not very many guides do enough of, or even at all, I think. Um, paying attention to your behavior, but watching the process of writing as it unfolds. You have two chapters on how to read, which for me was a major asset, asset of the book. I thought, (laughs) of course, you know, I mean, if you, if you write right-handed, you read left-handed, right? I mean, these two things are going on at the same time. Um, so I I suppose to come to my point, I mean, yeah, that I, I, I fully agree actually on this transferable skills side. I I think though, of course it, it, it should not be misunderstood as, as you said, get a degree in English. Um, that's that's not the point, is
2: it? No, uh, and and it's nothing. There's nothing wrong with a degree in English, of course. Uh, uh, but it's it's. I, I want to be a little cautious. I wanted to be cautious in writing the book that I didn't make it seem like this job of learning to write better was was an unscalable peak. Uh, you know, you, you don't have to read and understand Wuthering Heights and Finnegan's Wake in order to write well scientifically it's just that it helps if you read a lot of stuff uh so providing a path to getting better and, and getting better is a, a long uh a long-term goal and I, i've been writing scientifically for 30 years and i'm still getting better i think uh so you know there's pathways to to get better and And you hit the nail on the head with, I do spend a long time in the book on what I think of as writing as a verb, Uh, the process, what you're doing when you write, Uh, that's your behavior. It's, it's, it's where you write and when you write and things like that. I think that is, you know, some writing guides, like I think of Paul Silvia's how to write a lot are very rich in great advice on that kind of thing. Uh, Others, others, as you say, are are not, but I think it's super important. Um, I think, When I became aware that writing was a thing I could think about deliberately and and how I practice it could be something I work on, that was just totally transformative uh, for me. You mentioned the reading chapters, and you know, one of those chapters is a new chapter with the second edition, and it was one of the things I became aware was sort of missing from the first edition. Uh, Reading is so important. It's important, first of all, in the way we've been talking about it, in terms of filling your toolbox with writing technique, But of course, also, it's just so important in terms of you you have to read the literature in order to write about it. Uh, You have to understand the literature in your field. And there's so much of it. Uh, So providing some techniques for doing that reading efficiently and effectively seemed important. And that that was one of the motivations, actually, for uh, for producing a second edition was that that seemed to be a gap there. There were some others, but that was one.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, and a, a second edition uh, always speaks well for a book, and, and and to have seen these gaps and to have filled them um, makes makes obviously so much for a stronger performance. I mean, it, it rounds out the entire picture of what uh, writing is for the scientist. It rounds it out to the point. And this really struck me in that chapter that's new to the second edition: um, the reader's part in the communicative act. Yeah, communication. I'm I'm quoting of. Uh, somewhat precisely, communication isn't only the author's job, but active reading makes all the difference there. And I thought that that was a, just a, a wonderful insight that, that, that really points up for many scientists who aren't noticing that, what the literature is, how it serves their purposes in the research, and how it is that they're researching at that moment.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and, and I, I, will, I want to be a little careful about how I phrase that bit because I, I, I'm fairly, I argue fairly strongly that in terms of the thing I'm writing now, I don't want it to be the reader's job to do too much work. Uh, that's part of the whole point of writing clearly and plainly, of designing figures so they're very easy to read, things like that. Um, and so my job as a writer is to make things as easy as possible for the reader and, and uh, but that's not incompatible with uh, the notion that readers read and they read in particular ways and, and, and they're used to uh, looking for information presented in certain formats that are easier and so on uh, so it's not that the reader isn't doing a job they absolutely are and that reading chapter i think could help people do that part of the job when i'm writing i want to make the reader's job as easy as possible i think that's that's the way i'm going to try and square that particular circle
1: yeah yeah that that, that is also made perfectly clear in the book i mean that the it's it's put up front so often yeah that the clarity is 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 what it's all about and, and of course it is and in fact i would go so far and and, and this is uh, to Sort of bring us to the end of your book. (laughs) Um, I want to step back into a few other things, of course, before that, but to the issue of beauty in writing. Even there, you make it entirely clear, uh, and this is another feature of the book that that is just not out there and others this idea that you reflect on eloquence in scientific writing. I've I've read quite a few scientific guides and I haven't seen that there. And um, that that serves the function of clarifying. That was wonderfully put. Yeah, that you can have beautiful prose that
2: actually enhances your ability to say something clear I think I think you can and that that last chapter you were referring to is it was an interesting one to write because it is weird it's very weird no other book has a chapter like that in it uh, uh, reflections on beauty and humor in, in scientific writing uh, and, and as you say it'd be nice to get back to that but um, uh, I it, it it's one where People often get the idea that you should avoid humor or beauty because they are in sort of intrinsic enemies to clarity, and I don't think that has to be true.
1: No, I've spoken to many editors of research journals. I think of Josh Schibbeau, who's also written a book on Mm -hmm. – a guide on writing, and his colleague Carl Ritz at Soil Biology and Biochemistry – and we had a long, interesting discussion, and they spent a fair amount of time also talking about being welcome to articles that have voice. And again, the, the, the caveat was that the science be clear, but if it becomes clear in the writer's own way, they're entirely willing to publish those papers. And this seems to be very much in the vein of what you're talking about in that last chapter. Um Again, I mean, we've got some big names in this book. T.S. Eliot is quoted, yeah, from, from, uh, from his, his poetry. And we have your call, I wouldn't say call to arm, but certainly your encouragement that people think about how their reading and response to reading affects the way that writing is done. If, if I may, I'll, I'll just quote the two or three sentences. You say, you can announce your admiration of writing that has given you pleasure. Announce it to the writers who crafted the passage, to the editors who might be considering its fate, to students or colleagues who might read it. You can change our culture to deliver and value pleasure in our writing, if we choose to. That's the end of the quote. That, that, that in particular, to the students, I found, was a really
2: key target group, I would say so when I started thinking about this issue humor and beauty and writing and whether it had a place in scientific writing I, I was aware that I was being very weird um, but I learned after that that I wasn't weird in thinking about it I was weird in thinking about it out loud uh, because I, I would I, I remember giving a talk at, at a conference in uh, oh dear it must have been about 2015 or so uh, and they had put me in one of those And it was was basically that chapter. It was a talk about uh, humor and beauty in scientific writing. And they had put me in one of those sort of grab bag sessions that you get put in if your talk is strange enough that doesn't really fit anything else. And it was in a huge room. It must have sat, I don't know, 300 people or so. And I thought, oh, this is going to be so embarrassing because six people are going to come and they're all going to be my friends. Um, And I really honestly didn't have any idea what to expect. But people turned out. People came. Uh, they were thronging into the room, and I, I, I thought, "Wow, I, I think people actually are interested in this. It's just that no one thinks it's okay to talk about it, um, to talk about making a joke in a paper." Um, and, and that's been consistent experience for me now for quite a while. And, and there are certainly people out there who say, "No, you should never make a joke in a the paper." They definitely exist, but there are lots of people I think who would love to be given permission. In a sort of metaphorical way, uh, to to write with a little bit of voice in your word, uh, uh, or or with a little bit of uh, eloquence, or a little bit a little bit of beauty, and again, not to set the bar too high. uh, Not everyone is going to be comfortable trying to do that. And if someone wants to simply write very clearly, they'll they, they will and and put the effort into that. They will be. Among the top of our literature, and that's great. But for those who want to go a little bit further, uh, it turns out there's, there's a lot of appetite, I think, for writing that's a little bit different. Uh, but as you say, still clear. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a matter of
1: well, what do you actually mean by beauty, or what does Josh Shibble and Carl Ritz? What do they mean when they say voice? And uh, these things, even for people from English studies or other similar backgrounds, are hard to define. Yeah, taste essentially, <laughs> but. From a linguistics point of view, there is nothing that does not serve a function in a paper or another text that gets used, right? So essentially, if you're reaching people, then it must be doing its work. So the, the, the concern about becoming unclear because you're using a metaphor is perhaps slightly the wrong perspective. What about the metaphor that actually clarifies, for example? I mean, this is <laughs> this this could be put. You know, you could be packaging the beauty
2: and the clarity into one thing. Yes, uh, for sure, and and I think that metaphor can do two things. And so, whenever you, you use a metaphor, for example, there is certainly some potential risk that some readers won't understand it, uh, but other readers will. For some, that metaphor brings clarity. And in evolutionary biology, there's the, there's what we call the Red Queen hypothesis, which is a metaphor that's borrowed, of course, from Alice Through the Looking Glass. And it's the it's just the notion that because any species evolving is evolving against a background of other species that are also evolving, you get things like arms races. There's another metaphor uh, where uh, it, you know it takes um, evolutionary change simply to keep up with everybody else. So so we use the Red Queen hypothesis about that. And to me, that's a metaphor, that even for those who haven't necessarily read Alice, uh, once they understand that it's so it's so dramatic and so engaging that i think it does make it clear and it has another function as well and i think uh we've talked a little bit about about offline about the notion that decorations are actually functional and and these touches in writing i think can can play that really important function of recruiting a reader and then retaining a reader any reader who might deal with what you've written as a scientist is confronting a, a, just an utter fire hose of literature. There's just so much coming out, hundreds, thousands of papers you might read every year. You can't possibly read them all. So probably you'll read the ones that you know engage you. And so I think a touch like that, a, a, a nice metaphor, a, a humorous title, something like that can actually bring a reader to your work. And so that's to me a, a potentially useful function. Useful function. What a weird construction. There are no unuseful functions. That's the definition of it. Anyway, <laughs> well, there you know are I no mean? malfunctions. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know, that's the sense in which I think you can actually uh, take advantage of of writing with a few touches of humor and beauty to to increase the impact of your work. And we actually have a I've actually got a study close to submission of publication about humor and titles uh, that I think is going to reinforce that point. Um, there's a little bit of literature I, I touch on it in that chapter suggesting that papers with humorous titles are cited a little bit less often. Um, and that result always bothered me uh, because I didn't think it could be true because the pa- papers with humorous titles are the ones that get passed around on Twitter and, 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 and and photocopied in the, in the uh, university lunchroom and so on. Uh, and so we actually did a little bit of work on this and, and, it, to cut a very long story short, if you try to correct for the fact that scientists, turns out scientists often will give funnier titles to papers uh, that they themselves don't cite much in the future, that is, papers they themselves probably don't think are super important. Uh, if you correct for that in an analysis, we can now show that uh, uh, there's a fairly strong pattern where papers with funny titles are actually cited disproportionately more than papers with straight- up titles. Uh, this made me what because you're not supposed to want a certain result right when you do an analysis but that, that made me smile because uh, uh, you know you see this effect. you see people passing around a, t- a paper whose title they, they find amusing or and you think well that, that probably should mean people read the paper and I think it actually does. Uh, so that was a, a nice piece of science that's coming out well hopefully soon. <laughs> Well
1: that's uh we'll be definitely looking forward to that. Yeah maybe just one last point on this issue of of beauty because it is so fascinating. It's also about using the language in a sense to its fullest. I mean beauty is 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 the cornucopia, isn't it? It's 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 when you've reached the abundance level. And I think that that is something that is worth considering in science because often you have sentences that uh, I, would, I mean, you spend a lot of time in this in the book, and we can perhaps also turn to it, but you have sentences that are harder to decode if somebody hadn't perhaps considered what else the language can do. I mean, this is a major point throughout the book. I mean, I would put Ibid behind the statement. You want people to consider their choices, and that is just throughout obvious, and and I would say this is one of those points where people can consider. Why string five nouns prepositionally together when buried inside of one of them as a verb and your sentence turns out to actually
2: ring nicely as well yes absolutely and and this is one of those places i mentioned the risk of sort of this positive feedback from our literature uh comes in because i find particularly in teaching writing to early career scientists um we we do this to them we say uh you know Next week, you're going to hand in a lab report, uh, write up this experiment you did, and we say, quote, and write like the scientific literature, unquote. Well, that's a horrible thing to to tell anyone to do, uh, because unfortunately, much of our literature isn't particularly well written. Um, You know, we love our acronyms. and We love those long noun phrases, as you point out, and and we love the passive voice and, and so on. And so people who, who who sort of don't make the sort of conscious choices and simply model what they're writing on what's already out there, I think sort of get locked into some of those bad decisions, like those five noun phrases. Uh, so being aware of what you're doing and thinking about the language you're using and and being willing to, uh, well, as you say, use the language to its fullest. Uh, that's not an invitation to, to write Finnegan's Wake over again. Uh, it's, it's an invitation to, think carefully about what way of constructing your point will resonate best with the reader. Uh,
1: Pamela Hagg, who has written a book called Revised, talks about the tofu effect, which which describes very well what you're talking about. (laughs) Anyone who's had tofu knows that it's kind of bland and it's on its own, but whatever dish you happen to put it in, it, it sucks up all of that flavor, right? And her point is is that inside of a discipline, you can very easily be living on a high calorie tofu diet because you're really just, you know, you, you, your, your voice becomes everybody else's voice. And if the majority voice is, as you're describing it, let's say, a bit opaque, a bit heavy handed, <laughs> then um, this is very likely to also become your
2: voice. Yeah, and we definitely see that, and I, I I see that feedback, and and it's it's a hard one to break because it's you know you really can't blame an undergraduate, for example, who does exactly what they're told to do because they know they'll be they'll be graded, and in fact we have, you know, we still have faculty who who will see students producing scientific writing in the active voice and 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 mark them down because you know twenty thirty years ago when they learned to write, everyone wrote in the passive voice. We're we're starting to move past that, but it's still really hard to break the, these, these positive feedback loops. And that's a fascinating point to get into a few of the details
1: in the book about uh, different areas that you cover. You cover, for instance, the of course, the IMRAD structure. As we mentioned, you cover process, which I'd also like to say a few words on. You talk about the actual writing of sentences. And that brings me to this point here, passive uh, versus active. We are finding apparently that uh, the active is, well,
2: the trend is heading somewhat in the other way. Is is that the case? There's a really fascinating history behind that one. So for, for decades now, scientific writing has been dominated by the passive voice and that uh, no one ever thinks about why that might be, and whether it's a good thing or not. Uh, the trend most recently, as you say, is to reverse that, and we're heading back towards the active voice. Some fields are a little further out in front on that than others. But it turns out there's a really fascinating backstory to that, um, and I, I talk about it in the book in some depth, but to keep it sort of short, you know, our, our original earliest scientific writing, going back now to sort of the 1600s, 1700s, was active voice. And it was, and people wrote about themselves and said, I, and, and, and there was a, actually a deliberate rhetorical reason for that. They wanted readers to, to feel connected to the work. And I talk about this in some depth. In the early 20th century, roughly, science became really professionalized. And there was an a, a increasing emphasis on the on on projecting objectivity in science, and, and that was part of the professionalism that that we were supposed to be removed from the work and objective, and the passive voice in writing sort of comes in as part of that. That that we wanted the the knowledge to be divorced from any reference to the people who knew it. That I guess you know it's it's a it's a rhetorical technique. It's 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 not. Um, it's not wrong to see readers responding that way. Uh, but I think we've figured out now that, that it was sort of it's sort of unnecessary. We we all acknowledge that science is not monolithically objective. Nothing humans do is. Some human actually did do the work, why not just name them? Uh, and the result is writing that's that's usually a little shorter and much more engaging And so uh, I think it's really interesting that we've seen these swings back and forth over a few hundred years of writing uh, and people should be thinking about okay well you know I have to make a choice should I write like that 1980s paper and all in the passive or should I write in the active why would I make each of those choices what you know why did we write that way think about that and, and make a decision
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: And this is one of the ways that the book really not only encourages, but illustrates how to increase um, consciousness of what you're doing, awareness, um, which, again, is one of the major goals of the book. And I find any writing guide should have it as a major goal because there's no way to lay down. You make this point also in the grammar chapter. There's no way to lay down the rules as if you could, let's say, you know, a codex of law and just get people following them. (laughs) You know, that's not the way that language works. That's not, you're not going to communicate that way. And your history of of the passive and the active and the back and forth and the why, particularly the why, really encourages this reflection on the part of the reader. When you come to the conclusion, for instance, and, and, and I quote here, authority in modern science comes from our adoption of appropriate conduct and techniques, not from pretending we don't exist. I mean that just wham at the end of a paragraph as well just for any people there thinking about style that just wham makes you think oh yeah you know it's one of those eye openers you talked about your own eye opener when you realize oh you can think about writing and and I mean
2: this 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 certainly encourages that sort of behavior I'm 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 glad you like that that particular sentence because I I I I am perhaps a little bit too proud of that sentence <laughs>
1: And, and and just following up on that, one of the things that always surprised me about academic writing in general, but certainly in scientific writing, I mean, I think it's something like uh, less than 2%, uh, according to the corpus you look in, has any sort of a contraction. So can't, or don't, or doesn't, and so on. So I mean, this is a, a massive normal resource of the of the natural language, which which has no counterpart, it, it, it's, it's essentially something that's been, just been torn out of the scientific writing, right? You can't do that. <laughs> you have to say cannot. Yeah, now, you, you cannot do that, exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay, you cannot. <laughs> but I mean, for anybody who has any, let's say, you know, fluency or familiarity with English, the cannot sounds and means something, you know, almost diametrically opposed to can't,
2: right? There are shades of meaning that come into the use of contractions. so this goes back to you using the whole language and and so you you can certainly make an argument for using contractions along those lines. Uh, it's actually not my first argument for 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 that. I actually think the use of common contractions just makes the writing more engaging and and, and easier to read for the for the for the usual reader. It is funny that we have this. As, as you say, it's, it's almost unanimous um, belief that one should not use contractions in scientific writing, and I had never thought about that, and 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 I just, as a matter of going with the flow, didn't use them. Uh, and when I started to think about it, I, I realized you know this emperor doesn't have a whole lot of clothes, um, and I started looking into why people think we shouldn't. And most of it's entirely circular. We we shouldn't use contractions because the literature we're reading doesn't use contractions. It's just, you know completely circular some folks have had some concern about speakers of English as, a, as an additional language. And there are many, most scientific readers, of course, are not native English speakers. So we should be uh, considerate of them. But my highly unscientific efforts to find out what non-native speakers think is that they're not all that bothered by contractions. They're bothered by the same things that you and I are bothered by turgid sentences and a million acronyms and stuff like that. Uh, so, I've started to use contractions in my, in my papers. And it's, it's, it's sort of amusing to watch copy editors for journals, take them all out again.
1: (laughs) So spending their days taking apostrophes out of the air, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You you bring up the, the EAL, the English as an additional language uh, scientist. And as you say, clearly, yes, they're in the majority. Um, number wise, um, My experience has been, and I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say, and and this is also a a section of your book for the um, English as Additional Language Scientist, how much using English in science is for them really a language learning um, exercise, how much it is really just another part of the science? I suppose one way that you might think of the contrast that I'm trying to draw up is, are they trying to become proficient in English? or are they trying to become proficient in their science?
2: Wow, interesting interesting question. And, and so that chapter is one that I bulked up quite a bit in the second edition because I think it's really, really super important. And it's it's a bit unfortunate that I think our state of knowledge about how to best help those people is not, not what it could be. Um, in terms of what is needed are they are they helping their science or learning a language well you know they're obviously doing both right um in order to write scientific writing in english you you certainly have to have some familiarity with the language and and, and so on but uh you know, the primary purpose for doing it is simply that that's the way you reach the broadest possible readership, and, and we can talk about the ethics of that or the or the sort of the morality of that is a whole different subject, which is a practical purpose. So uh, English is the current lingua franca of science, uh, and so if you want the most readership, you publish in English. With advances in machine translation, this may not be true for that much longer, but for now it is, uh, and so people need to be able to write in English as a part of their science. Um, when they're learning to write papers in English, they're learning the language. They're learning the structure, which is which is often languages differ in, in structure. And, and so it's often easier to, to actually to write in a new language than to write in your first language and translate. Um, whether it is a matter of learning their or, or sort of uh, um, Writing in English does that actually help the science? I don't think so in the in the sense of you know you can only do science if you think about it in English. That's obviously not true. Uh, but as a practical uh, practical matter, you know what you've done only matters if it's widely read. And so one tool you have for achieving that, I guess, is to is to uh, be part of the lingua franca uh, for you know for better or worse. Did I get your distinction yeah. correct? I'm not sure it, if I did. Yeah, yeah, no, very much so, of course. Um,
1: I, I suppose I entirely agree with you that, of course, science can be thought of in every language there is out there. Um yeah, I've tried my best to think in other languages about other things as well. So <laughs> it, wor- it it happens and it works. And, and, and you do see different things as well, which is one of the issues of diversity that really matter. I mean, you can, with a different language highlights, even in... Th- even if it's subtly, different aspects of what's actually going on. But that's that's a whole can of worms, which, which I'm not intending to open here, or even, as you say, the ethics of it being in English now and maybe will be replaced by machine translation. Okay, these are futures. Um, but for the moment, I suppose part of my argument is that science is de facto thought in English. So... If you're trying from another language background to be actually doing your science, as you mentioned in the book and, and, and briefly mentioned here as an aside, uh, it, it's it's more efficient clearly to be writing directly into English rather than to be translating. But it's also sometimes that your your whole environment is English, right? Your the mentality is. English language, in a sense, maybe just with an anecdote to point up a little bit what I mean. um, I had a a Portuguese postdoc who I was helping with writing, and she very happily got um, a position back in in Portugal. She was going to be a professor there leading a research group. And she was very concerned that they were going to be asking her to teach in Portuguese. And she said, God, I hope not, because, you know,
2: (laughs) I only know all this stuff in English. Ha. So that's that's interesting. And as so as a as a linguistic thing, um uh that, that actually makes sense that that um uh the the you may you may be comfortable in a language uh for a particular sort of rhetorical purposes and, and even maybe more familiar with a with a, a foreign language for a particular rhetorical purpose. And and I notice that whenever I'm trying to to, to, to speak French about particular things uh, I, I'm much better at speaking French about some topics than others um, I don't think that means I, I don't think you're I don't think you're saying that the structure of science is molded by our use of the English language to do it but that's actually a really interesting topic for somebody who actually knows that stuff which is not me <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose
2: I'm floating it out
1: there for my listeners as well, because I'm also not that expert. But it's something that I've thought about, because, I mean, yeah, you've, you've got me right. I'm not saying that science uh, can only be thought in English. I'm just saying that much of it, I mean, a shocking amount of it, let's say, even, is being thought in English. And 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 that's affecting scientists and the way they work.
2: Yeah, so really interesting question about whether that actually affects the the progress or outcome or, or emphasis or anything else in, of science. I don't know the answer to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, floating questions for our listeners <laughs> sure. uh, to come back to the, to, to come back to the um, a book, two, two areas that I definitely wanted um, to broach uh, in the interview were, as I've mentioned now, a few times um, writing process. And another was to give a, a look, however brief at the IMRAD structure, because that's, you know, just so central. To what science does in its publication, but perhaps let's start at the beginning, which is which is process. And um, what I wanted to call attention to there was the fact that you call attention to it. Uh, y- you mentioned, for instance, when it comes to revision, that the, the sort of common denominator for so many people is that it it's they don't think about it, right? I mean, it's just not part of the process that's you know major for them in any way. And your comments on how it is that with the one personality type or the other, you approach your revision, how it is that you get the words down initially and then go back to them at what time span, with what what attitude, with what techniques, because it's never easy. I mean, this is something that scientists don't have alone when it comes to the writing. No one who writes finds it easy, right? Or let's say 0.001% do so they do <laughs> but every, everyone else doesn't and, and and there's just so much in, in the book there one of the things that really jumped out of me again fantastic formulation again at the end of a paragraph was fight behavior with behavior um, this this i found a very effective way of encapsulating so many points of advice that you were giving there
2: yeah and, and you know again this is all building off my own experiences as, as a you know beginning writer when i when i learned far too slowly that I was in many ways my own worst enemy and, and I could manage myself if I deliberately set about doing it. Uh, and, you know, things as simple as procrastination, which, you know, is this, this universal human uh, vice uh, can be managed if you actually think about it. And, and you you have to get writing done if you're a scientist. It's a huge part of what we actually do spend far more time writing than you do chasing wolves in the snow or or uh programming the settings on the on the cyclotron or whatever uh and so paying attention to the process i think pays off hugely but it's not something that many writing books dive deeply into many books are more about writing as a noun what it looks like uh what which way you should structure sentences. And I do that stuff too, but but I thought it was really important to start with the human who is producing the writing and that human has normal human psychology and you can make a lot of progress by recognizing that. And and, uh, and as you say, fighting your own behavior with behavior. And you offer plenty of uh, very concrete examples, uh, techniques
1: on how to do that and then you follow up as you do every chapter uh, something also worth emphasizing which makes the book uh, very teachable or even in self-study very usable um, with exercises exercises that really say okay well now sit down and do a b or c or take an example of this or that writing and try out this i mean these are the
2: things that really get the book uh, you know moving as if it was an app (laughs) I I've, I've worked fairly hard in the second edition to really increase those exercises. Um, I, I will admit that they, they didn't come naturally to me in the first edition. I, I didn't quite – I was encouraged to, to do them in the first edition. I didn't quite see the point, but I said, okay, fine. And, and then I started teaching a course and using them, and I thought, wow, okay, now I understand why they're pushing me to put these in. Because uh, I, I really do think it's a way to – for the reader of this book to really engage very actively with it uh and to be encouraged to do that self-reflection we're talking about and i found them really effective in my own writing class uh so it made sense to make lots more available this time
1: yeah and and they very much provide exactly that sort of support that you're talking about and i could see how they would um, definitely work in writing class i'd I'd like to come now to uh, the the other point i just mentioned the imrad structure and and, and, and content and structure in general, which, which you refer to as a story, which is a sort of trope that you find throughout the writing um, guide literature on, on science and elsewhere, um, build a narrative, tell a story. Uh, but, but you make the point right away at first mention to say that this isn't story in the sense of um, once upon a time. This, this is just a, a fancy way of saying your content and structure.
2: Yes. uh, So you get a lot of pushback when you tell people that scientific papers tell stories, and and usually it's because people think you're saying that they're fiction. Uh, That's that's not what we mean by story. Um, I think what we mean is harnessing content and structure to take a reader through uh, an experience that asks a question and then answers it uh, and does so in a fairly nicely packaged way. I think that's what I mean by story. And so you're right, content and structure. And IMRAD is part of the con- part of the structure and content that our readers are expecting. It's, it's evolved, we've evolved it to become a very effic- efficient uh, way to transmit information by sort of putting parts of the story exactly where readers expect it. And so if you're looking for uh, a particular thing Uh, Like you know, the 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 biggest picture importance of the work. Well, you know where to look for that, right? It's going to be either the first or last sentence, or first or last paragraph of the the introduction. So you know where to look for it. When you hit it, it's in a place you're familiar with. Uh, You know, it's the 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 less brand new thinking your reader has to do when they're digesting your story, the better. Uh, If you're putting things where they expect them. Uh, then they're comfortable, uh, and they absorb them, and, and that's true. You know, at the scale of individual sentences, uh, I talk about that in, in one chapter. But it's also true at the level of a whole paper. And so we we have a consensus around IMRAD in part because we're so familiar with it; it works so well.
1: And it works so well. The better you understand it, which is what your section on your separate chapters on each of the parts of the IMRAD really help the reader understand as it's used, right? There's very many words that have been sort of expelled on (laughs) what an abstract is meant to do, what a title is meant to do. I find that you really boil it down to essences and really hit the function of these things so that, as you just said, so that they have their place in the story and the reader finds what the reader is expecting there. So for example, you, you, if, if, if I just might, uh, for the example there with the, the front matter and the abstract, you talk about the functions that they primarily overtake, they take over there are advertising and summarizing. And I think there's going to be a number of undergraduates and maybe even people who are currently working on their PhDs who don't have those two functions front and center in their minds when they're writing those two parts of their IMRAD.
2: Yeah, I think so, and and you know those those are some of the simpler bits uh, to write once once you've sort of uh, digested that. Uh, I worked really hard actually on the introduction and discussion chapters because those are much harder uh, because not because they don't have sort of fairly standardized functions and contents, but because there's a lot of freedom in writing them, and so it's less obvious what those standard things are. And there I got in a little bit into what uh, John Swales talks about as rhetorical moves. Uh, that are made by almost every introduction to a scientific paper. For example, will, will make a very similar set of rhetorical moves, but but they're not they don't have explicit subheads, uh, and so if you don't think carefully, you may not notice that they're always there. Uh, and so you know every single introduction uh, is going to give a broader um, uh, context uh, identify a research gap, uh, talk about the significance of filling that gap, you know things like that. And if you actually I have my students now do something where they actually do make subheadings for those uh, things that happen in all introductions to put four of them. Um, And and I have them explicitly put subheadings and do each of those things and then take the subheadings out at the end. It helps a lot just to know what conventionally one does and what because now we know what the function of that chunk, in this case, the introduction is for the reader.
1: Yeah, and you also make a clear section to section the, so the c- connections that are going on, the dependencies between them. So since the abstract, for instance, and the title together fulfill the advertising and summarizing functions, you, you don't need now to forf- you put that in the forefront of your introduction anymore. As, as you say, you need to be contextualizing there, you need to be drawing in. Um, you give also the, the picture of the hourglass, right? So you widen the top of it, uh, or if you like, a martini glass, <laughs> widen the top of it to the point that you've, you've scooped in who it is that you want reading you, and then you draw them down into your study. But that is not summary,
2: right? That is pure
1: rhetoric, as you've just said.
2: Uh, yeah, I uh, hadn't thought to put it quite that way, but yes, yeah, and and there are uh, changes, and and one of the big ones to me with you know what you say about the abstract having having become so critical to us taking over the summarizing function is is, is I'm no longer a big fan of a conclusion section at the end of a paper because I think it's sort of already done by the abstract. Uh, not everyone agrees on that, but to, to your general point about thinking about what function sections are doing and how the function of one section. Uh, could be informed about what's going on in the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that shows up uh,
1: as, as you mentioned the discussion being so all important and also being the area where you find um, yourself as the, as the writer with suddenly a tremendous amount of freedom, (laughs) but you have to weigh up that freedom as you make very clearly against the results section and even against the introduction section. I mean, to be brief, and uh, please feel free to expand there. To be brief, the relation to the introduction section is well fulfill your promises, right? I mean, your questions that you asked, at what level you asked them, need to also be showing up in the same level and with, let's say, the appropriate answers in the discussion. And to the to the results section, um, really, what you've drawn attention to there. Is what gets interpreted in the discussion section. So these relations between the sections seem so all-important.
2: Yeah, and, and a lot of that is sort of, again, uh, getting that story that runs with the whole paper. And you're absolutely right. So one way of thinking about what should be in the discussion is, well, what was in the introduction? Uh, uh, you know, wrap that, wrap that up. Or much more usefully, I think, it's the other way around. I write the discussion first and uh, write the introduction later. And then to me, what goes in the introduction? Well, whatever I need to set up that discussion I just wrote. Yeah, yeah.
1: So one last section uh, we haven't talked about, so it, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. And there's some very interesting things and in probably the least interesting section, the methods um, that you have to say there. What I found fascinating was... <laughs> Again, the history here, you talk about that most people have in mind and people are even taught. It's about the replicability that these details that you include in your uh, method section need to be the details that allow for reproduction of the study exactly as it was run so that you can also obtain the same results. And uh, you very, very cogently and very convincingly say it has been that way. And probably up until quite recently, but in our contemporary time, we're dealing actually with the methods being more of a credibility function for the paper as a whole. And again, I would say that there's very many student scientists who probably aren't noticing that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, it would take us a whole another hour, Daniel, to, to, to plumb that one. Uh, it, it, there's some big questions there. But the way we've thought about methods detail has changed over time. And the, and the reasons we give detail, I think, have evolved. I, we all tell each other that methods are for repl- reproducibility. We all tell each other that. But we don't actually do it. it it's very rare to have a method section that actually includes that level of detail. And so you kind of wonder why we tell each other that, but don't actually do it. And, and t- to me, it made a lot of sense when I when I thought back through time and, and thought about the essential problem that, that comes up in science, which is that it's all cumulative. So why do we believe the results of a paper we've just read? Uh, it's almost never because we've actually gotten it out, looked at the methods and redone the work ourselves. It's almost never for that reason. No one ever hardly ever does that. So why do we? And so that's where you get into this idea of authority or credibility. And like I say, it would take us a whole hour to plumb that one, but uh, I hope people will read that chapter and have a little bit of think about it. About it.
1: I have to read to them though one of your footnotes, <laughs> which is in that which is in that chapter. And 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 this book is full of fun footnotes. It's it's full of them and has the right ones in the right places. There's remarks that catch your attention. There's useful information. And, and there's deep thoughts, like in this one, on just that topic, and I agree, Steve, yes, we'd be here another hour. Um, the issue of how is it that we, in the methods, consider replicability, right? And I quote here, if scientific results aren't routinely verified by repetition, how are they verified? Many never are. And with this collective shrug, science indicates its opinion of their importance. The rest are verified because their results prove consistent with other results and because other scientists are able to build further understanding on top of them. End quote. Really interesting stuff. Um, and also, I can see the relation of that to this idea that you're building credibility. You're not designing other people's studies for them.
2: Yeah, Um. Uh... There's just, we have enough to do without rebuilding everything every time. And so our, our science can't function unless we are able to, uh, you know, move on from results that have some authority. It, does, it doesn't mean that literature is never wrong. Of course it is. Uh, and yeah, we figure that out. We, we rare, we don't all, we, It's unusual for us to figure that out by actually doing someone's experiment over again. Usually it's because another experiment doesn't add up. Um, so I encourage people to, to, to have a read and think that over. I'm glad you found yeah, the footnotes. I'm glad you like the footnotes. <laughs> I, I I confess to being a little too fond of, of footnotes, and I use them for often witty asides that I hope keeps readers engaged. But some people don't like them very much. And I'm, I'm glad that you uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed them. Oh no, they, they 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 belong there. They definitely belong
1: in that book. I mean, I suppose one last afterthought on on what you're saying there about. Okay, well, this is perhaps something we need to think about. So, the function of the methods section and, and why is it there? Why is it that we say it does one thing, but in practice, we're doing something else? And this just to sort of provide an overview of what you're doing in this book, which is in some ways also just more than a writer's guide. It's, it's it's or it's it's the writer's guide we need because it's getting people to think about writing. That's 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 you know one of the main aims of anyone who wants to teach somebody how to write is when you're saying these things, for instance, about the passive, as you said earlier, right? There's not enough passive in that, or your method section's not detailed enough. But in the real literature, it's, it's less detailed than that. And in the real literature, more active is being used. What this is, for me, is a symptom of lack of reflection on the writing. It, and, and, and it's a tragedy, because it would be you would never expect of a scientist to be unreflective of his or her methods. Well, if you count among the methods, the writing, then he or she needs to now be reflective on those. Yes,
2: I could have put that better myself.
1: (laughs) Very good. Well, uh, Steve, thank you very much for your time. Um, I do have one last question, though, and this comes from uh, your final thoughts chapter. You write, I learned a lot about writing and about myself as a writer while working on this book. What did you
2: learn? (laughs) Oh, boy. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> so you know, all, this, the, all the chapters about process um, make it sound like I've understood myself as a writer for a long time. Uh, m- many of those things in, in the chapters on process, tips, for example, about doing a writing log where you actually keep track of what you're doing every few minutes for an hour's writing session, I, I came across those while writing the book and tried them out and went, oh my, look what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, I knew I was a bad procrastinator. I, I knew I I I didn't really enjoy writing that much. I enjoy having written. I don't necessarily enjoy the process itself. Um, and I learned so many things about how to manage myself. Uh, and I also, to get back to your point about reflection and, and and about sort of understanding what things are for, I learned a lot about... The history of what we're doing of scientific writing why we do things that way and often i was able to go oh i've done that without thinking about why but now i understand what it's for or oftentimes oh i've done that without thinking about why and now i understand why it's a bad idea uh it it really changed me as a writer it even um got me a writer's voice we've talked about voice a little bit um my i think my scientific writing is now considerably more interesting because it ha- i've let myself have a bit of a voice uh, an individual imprint on the writing i discovered i liked writing that way i liked writing a little bit less technically and i can draw a line from this book to my other book um uh, which is called charles darwin's barnacle and david bowie's spider it's it's not a uh, it's, it's not a book for, for scientists, it's a, it's a general uh, interest book about uh, Latin names of species named for people. And that came about early because I had discovered how much fun it was to be able to to write in a way that's not what we do in a paper. That was fun to learn. Well,
1: it sounds like you were your own first guided writer. Is that, that
2: fair to say? <laughs> yes. And, and I think as soon as you start paying attention to yourself and being conscious about it, you you then guide yourself. Uh, um, So there's benefits there for everyone to make the discoveries that I made.
1: Well, thank you very much. That is Stephen Hurd and his book, The Scientist's Guide to Writing was just published in its second edition by Princeton University Press. I'm Daniel Shea and this is goodbye from me to Steve. Goodbye.
2: Thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun, Daniel.
1: And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time, here on Scholarly Communication.